Well, in our third look at Luke chapter 12, and what I guess we could call, if we wanted to give it a name, we could call it the five warnings discourse. We now come, finally, to the two positive warnings, which are be watchful, and we'll look at that in verses 35 to 53, and be discerning, verses 54 to the end of the chapter 59. Now, beginning in verse 35, that's where we will begin our lesson today of this very long chapter. It does consist of 59 verses, and I guess that's why it's taken us three weeks to get through it. But in verse 35, the Lord suddenly changed his emphasis from that of not worrying about the present to being watchful about the future. Did you ever stop to think about the fact that one of the very best ways for a Christian to have victory over such sins as we've been talking about, such as hypocrisy and covetousness and worry, is for him or her to be watching for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ? That's the best way to over, be able to overcome those sins. If we are living in the spirit of expectancy regarding the future, it's really difficult to be ensnared by the things and the concerns, the stuff and the predicaments and the trials and our problems with this life, you know, mammon in this life, is to be um, watching and waiting for the Lord's return and to understand that it could be imminent, as I said in our prayer. If, if, if you think about this a minute, if I am truly living out my life in the expectancy of the Lord's imminent return, and that means that he could return at any one moment in time, and that is what we, as Christians believe um, regarding the second coming that the rapture there are no signs that precede the rapture and I'm going to get into if you don't understand what I'm talking about when I say rapture I'll get into that later on in this lesson but if we're truly living out our life expecting his imminent return then we are not going to be want to be want to be caught playing the hypocritical game are we if I understand that he could come at any one minute, I don't want to be ashamed that he's coming and be playing the hypocrite. And if I really believe who he, that he is who he says he is, then I understand that he is God and that he can read my heart and he knows I'm a hypocrite anyway. So why be playing the hypocritical game? If I really believe that he is who he says he is, and if I really believe he says who he is, <laughs> I will believe that, he, that in his promises that he said he would return. And he does say he, he will return. And... Um, and I, so if I believe that, I will be trying to keep myself as righteous as I possibly can, practically speaking. I will also know that at his return, I will be accountable as I stand before him at the Bema seat. You know, the judgment seat of Christ. Not, not to be judged for my salvation. That will already have been settled. It already is settled because I know I am truly saved. But I will stand before him to give an account for my works. And I don't want them to be burned up as wood, hay, and stubble. Do you? I don't want them to be burned up because uh, of having been a hypocrite or, or covetous or having the wrong motives or being, you know, a nervous wreck my whole life through. And the same holds through, uh, true through any other sins. We don't want to be caught ashamed being involved in any kind of a sin when he comes. So if I am living in the urgency and the expectancy of Christ's return, why would I be all caught up in the worries and the stress of the things of this world, knowing that I could be out of here at any one moment in time? And, and leave all these things behind, not being able to take any of them with me. Thank goodness I can't take the troubles and the trials with me either, and the tears. The only thing that will go with me will be those things that I have stored up in heaven, that I have laid up, the treasures that I have laid up in heaven. 
So the best way to overcome worry is to be expecting the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. So in Luke chapter 12, by use of yet another parable known as the parable of the faithful servants, the Lord Jesus warned his disciples, who he's speaking to first and foremost, and also the other listeners in that huge Judean crowd, he reminds them or warns them of the importance of being watchful and ready and faithfully serving God and seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness until the Lord's return. Now, if you think about what the Lord says in this parable, and I will get to it in a minute and read it, but uh, if we think about what he says from his listener's perspective, this parable is really um, prophetic. Because he's talking about his return. And from their perspective, you see, he hasn't even left. And they weren't expecting him to leave. Even his disciples were not expecting him to leave. Even though he told them he was going to, they hadn't gotten it yet, had they? So, for him to be saying that he's going to be returning is really a prophecy that he's going to be also departing. All right, so this parable, we will see, is prophetic in nature. Let's read it now, um, and if you would look, it does. the parable itself doesn't really begin until verse 36. But in verse 35, the Lord says to his men, Let your loins be girded about, and your lights burning. And ye yourselves like unto men that wait for their Lord when he will return from the wedding, that when he cometh and knocketh, they may open unto him immediately. Blessed are those servants whom the Lord, when he cometh, shall find watching. Verily I say unto you that he shall gird himself and make them to sit down to meet, and will come forth and serve them. And if he shall come in the second watch or come in the third watch and find them so, blessed are those servants. And this know, that if the good man of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not have suffered his house to be broken through. Be ye therefore ready also, for the Son of Man cometh at an hour when ye think not. All right, I said that this parable is prophetic in nature. The Lord of the servants in this parable speaks of who do you think? Jesus, of course. The the Lord of the servants is symbolic of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are told that he went away to attend. Do you notice? It says the wedding in verse 36. The wedding. Not just a wedding. He went away to attend the wedding, but he promised to come back. It says when he will return from the wedding. It also says in verse 37, the Lord when he cometh. It says in verse 40, blessed is that servant whom his Lord when he cometh. And it says in verse 46, the Lord of that servant will come in a day, etc. So over and over again, he's promising his return. But in promising his return, he's also promising his departure, which is exactly what he predicted over in verse 50. I haven't read that yet. But if you look ahead at verse 50, when he said, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how am I straightened till it be accomplished? The baptism of which he is speaking there is not a water baptism. It's a baptism speaking of his quickly approaching suffering and death. 
as he anticipated, because he knew ahead of time where he was headed, as he anticipated the judgment of the cross, he had an inward distress. That's what he means when he says, how I am straightened until it is accomplished. How I am distressed, how I am pained, knowing all that it held for him. You know, literally, he became sin for us. And as he looked toward that cross, it pained him, knowing what he would go through. But also the word straightened means that he, not only was he pained, but he was also anticipating getting it over with. He was anticipating having his redemptive work accomplished. And so there was really sort of, uh, mixed with that pain, a longing for it to come so that he could die for the sins of the world. So one part of it was dreading it, but the other part of him was was um, really kind of longing for it. Because the Lord takes great delight in finishing that which he has begun. He always finishes his work. And when he finishes it, it brings him great delight. And the same is true with you and I. He will finish the work he has begun in each and every one of us. And when he finishes it and we are Christ-like, we are like him. When we see him and we're like him, he takes great delight in that. Well, the teaching of the scripture, both in Old and New Testament, centers on, of course, one person. And that person is the Lord Jesus Christ. From Genesis to Revelation, the Bible is all about the Lord Jesus Christ and three great truths about him. He is coming, which is basically, in a nutshell, the message of the Old Testament. The Messiah is coming. All the way it starts from back in Genesis 3. The Messiah is coming. The promised seed of the woman is coming. So three great truths. Number one, he is coming. Old Testament. Number two, he has come. From our perspective, he has come. That's what we're studying the Gospels. is all about the fact that he has come. The Messiah has come. Much of the New Testament, of course, is centered on the fact that Jesus has come. Third truth. Not only he is coming, he has come, but what? He will come. He will come. He is coming again and of course that is the subject of a lot of the a lot of the bible old testament and new testament now did you know that did you know that jesus christ is coming again how many of you knew that raise your hands all right that's that's most of you i know the reason i asked that question is because i never did I never knew that Jesus Christ was coming again. And I grew up in a quote-unquote Christian church. Never heard the word rapture my whole life until I was 22 and a half, almost 23 years old. Never heard the word rapture. Never heard about the second coming. Now, you know what? That's not very biblical. That's not very biblical. Um, It's not very biblical to attend a Christian church and yet never hear the truth that Jesus Christ is literally coming again. And I can make that statement. I can say that's not biblical. (laughs) I can make that statement dogmatically because I can make it based on statistical evidence from the Bible itself. Now, if you want to say that the church church doctrine or um, something else is your final authority for faith and practice, fine, you can say Jesus isn't coming again. But if you say that the Bible, the Word of God, is your final authority for faith and practice, then I can make that statement dogmatically, that it is not biblical not to teach, that's a double negative, but it isn't biblical not to be teaching your people about the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm going to let you make up your mind about that because I'm just going to give you the statistics straight from the Bible itself. 
And you decide if a preacher or a reverend or a minister, whatever you want to call him, a priest um, or a church or a whole denomination, you determine yourself if, if they're not teaching about the second coming, coming of Jesus Christ, if that's biblical or not, just based on these statistics. Okay, here's the first one. There are more than 500 verses throughout the Bible that speak of the Lord's second coming. 500 verses in the Bible that speak of the Lord's second coming. 30% of the Bible is prophetic in nature. And one-third of prophecy deals with the second coming. Did you know a third of the Bible deals with prophecy is prophetic in nature? And some people say, oh, I don't want to study prophecy. Well, throw out one-third of your Bible then. All right, here's another one. Of the 46 Old Testament prophets, less than 10 of them predicted something having to do with the Lord's first coming. But 36 Old Testament prophets speak of something having to do with his second coming. So there's 46 Old Testament prophets. 10 of them speak about the first coming. 36 of them speak about the second coming. All right, of the 333 prophecies concerning the Lord Jesus, 333, that's an easy number to remember about him because he was 33 when he died. It's 333 prophecies about Jesus. Only 109 of them were fulfilled at his first coming. So that means that there's 224 left, and they all have to do with his second coming. 224, that's double the amount of prophecies regarding his second coming. All right, here's another statistic. One out of 25 verses in the New Testament refer directly to the second coming. One out of 25 verses in the New Testament refer directly to the second coming. And there are many, many more verses that refer indirectly to the Lord's second coming, such as in this parable. This is sort of an indirect prophecy about his second coming. All right, there are 1,527 verses in the Old Testament that refer to the second coming. Um, next to the, here's a really amazing one. Next to the subject of faith, the subject of the second coming of the Lord Jesus is the most discussed subject in the New Testament. Is it important? Obviously, if it's the second most discussed subject other than faith, it is very important. Then for every time the Lord's first coming is mentioned in the Bible, Old and New Testament, the Lord's second coming, this is incredible, is mentioned eight times. Every time the, New Te- the first coming is mentioned once, the second coming is mentioned eight times. For every time the Lord's atonement for sin is mentioned once, the Lord's second coming is mentioned twice. The Lord Jesus himself referred to his own return 21 times directly. That's, again, not counting the indirect ways, the symbolic ways, the parabolic ways. But directly, he referred to his return 21 times. For example, when he said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. That's um, uh, John 14, 2. I think that's in one of these albums. Yeah, that's in this true one and only true and lasting comfort for troubled hearts. We talk about that. So if he isn't coming back again, guess what? He is a liar because 21 times he directly said he was coming back. 
So if he isn't coming back, he's a liar. If he's a liar, he's a sinner. If he's a sinner, he's not our savior. If he's not a savior, we might as well go on before the storm breaks, right? (laughs) Dr. Lewis Talbot. Oh, one more statistic I forgot. No, two more. Men are exhorted to be ready for the return of Jesus Christ more than 50 times. And one of those we're going to find in today's passage from Luke chapter 12. And speaking of uh, parables... Did you know that there are several parables that speak about the Lord's death, but there are 14 or 15 parables that speak about his return? And this is one of them today. In a book called If Christ Should Not Return, Then What? by Dr. Lewis Talbot, he says this, quote, Not only did the Lord Jesus speak of this great event, his return, over and over again, but the apostles bounded up with every doctrine they taught and with every exhortation they gave to Christian living. End of quote. So, knowing all those statistics, why then do so many supposedly Christian churches not teach their people, the congregations, about the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, such as the church I was raised in? Never heard about it. Well, some think that the doctrine of the second coming is just, have you ever heard this? Like the book of Revelation, oh, you know, it's just too controversial. It's too divisive. And it's far too complex for the average Christian to understand. So we, we don't get into that. We don't really talk about prophecy or, or the book of Revelation because, you know, like I said, too many different interpretations and the people really can't understand it. That's a bunch of baloney. The book of Revelation is one of the easiest books to understand there is in the Bible. It even provides us with its own outline, which is very convenient. And um, it's the only book in the Bible, amazingly, that is the person who reads and studies it and keeps its words is promised a blessing. Only book in the Bible. Isn't it amazing? It's the least studied and uh, it's really, yeah, oh, of course, there's a lot of symbolism in it, but it's not hard to figure out the symbolism because much of the symbolism is already given to us in Scripture. We just have to do a little homework and research, but it's very, really a very simple. If you book, it's a simple book if you take it literally. Um, and, and it's not, you know, I, I don't believe that the sheep can't learn things. Yes, we're dumb, but we have a whole lot of potential. And, and the Lord wrote this book for us, so he expects us to be able to have the capacity to, to study it and learn it. What? He said he would teach us. He said he would teach us. He even gave us a resident teacher, the Holy Spirit living within us to help us. So I don't believe all that, that reason. Well, another reason that you don't hear about the second coming in a lot of churches is um, because a lot of theologians have decided to spiritualize the Lord's return. Say, oh, yes. Um, he's coming back, but it's just going to be, you know, way off in the distant, eons and eons away, and it's going to be just sort of like we'll all be together in, in the far future, and it really doesn't apply to our lives today. He's not coming back physically. He's not coming back literally. He's not going to set up a literal kingdom here on earth and reign over us, etc. He's not coming back bodily. But again, there's a real problem with that kind of interpretation because you see every prophecy that related, how many were there? 109. Every one of those 109 prophecies that related to the Lord's first coming was fulfilled literally. 
Not spiritually, not figuratively, not allegorically or metaphorically or symbolically. For example, he was to be born in Bethlehem, Ephrata. Very specific because there was more than one Bethlehem back in that day. And where was Jesus born? Literally in Bethlehem, Ephrata. He was to be called out of Egypt, Hosea 11.1. And he was. He was to be called a Nazarene from Nazareth. And he was. Uh, He would perform amazing miracles, even like giving the blind their sight and cleansing lepers. Was did he do that? Yes. He was it was said that he would the Messiah when he came would speak in parables. And he did. It was said that he would specifically enter Jerusalem on an unridden colt of a donkey. And he did. Zechariah 9.9, it even told us what day he would ride in, according to Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy, right to the very day. Talk about tiny details, all literally fulfilled. It said that he was to be betrayed by a friend, Psalm 41.9, and he was. It says he was to be sold for 30 pieces of silver, specific, literally, and he was. And that silver was going to be used to buy a potter's field. And again, it was, Zechariah 11:12, all of which was fulfilled literally, absolutely literally. And he was going to be offered gall and vinegar to drink, and he was. Uh, his garments were to be parted and lots cast for them. That was predicted back in Psalm 22:18, and they were. He was to be buried in a rich man's tomb, and he was, etc., etc. We could go on. I could name 109 of these prophecies, and he fulfilled every single one of them literally. So to then use a spiritual interpretation for all of the second coming prophecies that involves a dual principle of interpretation, nobody has the right to do. In other words, nobody has a right to say that, okay, all the first coming prophecies were fulfilled literally, but we say that all the second coming prophecies are going to be Uh, are to be interpreted symbolically, not literally, but figuratively. Nobody has the right to do that because the scripture, for one thing, does not make that distinction. When the Bible states that Christ will be born in Bethlehem and he is born in literal Bethlehem, who has the right to say that when he comes back and, you know, he will come back and sit on the throne of David in Jerusalem, that Jerusalem doesn't mean literal Jerusalem. That Bethlehem was literal, but Jerusalem is going to be some Jerusalem pie in the sky kind of a Jerusalem, not the literal Jerusalem and not the literal throne of David. Nobody has the biblical right to say that and to use a dual method of interpretation. Remember those two angels in Acts 1.11 who appeared and spoke to the Lord's disciples as they were watching, standing there watching from the Mount of Olives, Jesus literally bodily, you know, in his glorified bodily uh, body, uh, ascend into heaven. They were watching him. There he goes, just up, up and away. Beam me up, Scotty. (laughs) And they watched him until he got into the clouds and they could see him no more. And the two angels, what did they say? They said, ye men of Galilee. Now they could say that because Judas was out of the picture. Judas was the only one not from Galilee. So now they're all from Galilee. And the angels say, ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you, shall come what? In like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. The God sent message of the angels was that Jesus would return just as literally, just as physically in his glorified body as these men had of faith had seen him ascend. You know, he, he, he went up into the clouds. When he comes back, second coming, he's going to come in the clouds. He went up bodily, he's going to come back. He went up from the Mount of Olives. Guess where he's going to land when he comes? 
Mount of Olives. Now that's not the rapture, but that's the, the return or the revelation they call it. There's two phases, and I'll talk about the two phases of the second coming. But you know, there's a lot of people out there in the world who scoff us and laugh at us and say that we are fools. These Christians are just fools for saying that Jesus is coming back and that we are absolutely ridiculous to be watching and waiting for him. But again, that was prophesied, that was predicted. It's even predicted in our parable today that there will be scoffers. And didn't Peter say that in the last days there would be scoffers? He says in uh, Second Peter. Peter 3 3 knowing this first that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts and saying where is the promise of his coming so there's a lot of scoffers the sad thing is that the scoffing has even permeated into much of Christendom because many in the churches are saying oh there's not going to be any such thing as his as, as the Lord's return the rapture is just ridiculous doctrine and da 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 but uh, that's because so many people have bought into this evolutionism and uniformitarianism that all things continue on as they were from the beginning. You know, there are no changes. God doesn't intervene in, in human affairs. We don't believe that. We don't believe because the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches catastrophism, that God does intervene. He did intervene in the flood. He's intervened several times in man's history, and he's going to intervene again. Really big catastrophes in the end times during the tribulation. But anyway, back to Peter. Peter went on to encourage those who await his return by saying this, The Lord is not slack concerning his promises, as some count as some men count slackness but is long-suffering to us word why not willing that any should perish but that all men should come to repentance why has the lord waited so long for his return i mean the scoffers would say oh it's been two thousand years and he hasn't come back one of those christians going to get the picture that he isn't coming he's coming he's coming exactly at the at the hour that God has set from eternity past, he's coming. But he has been so long-suffering toward mankind, allowing him more and more time to get himself right. I'm glad he waited, or I wouldn't, I wouldn't be here. <laughs> I wouldn't have been born, um, and I wouldn't be saved. So I'm glad he's been long-suffering to us word. Mike Wingate, in his prophecy newsletter, which uh, I always read from cover to cover, and I know Donna does too, and anybody else who wants to get it, he, it's free, and he sends it out every month. And boy, it's kind of scary. I got really, didn't get worried, but I got concerned when I read yesterday's about the economic situation here in the uh, United States. But anyway, he writes this in his November 2006 newsletter. He said, quote, prophecy is about the character and heart of God. Prophetic truth is the revelation of the nature of God. All of the judgments in the book of Revelation should scream into the ears of the Bible student, God is holy and he hates sin. He's been long-suffering, but boy, he hates sin. He's holy, he hates sin, and he's going to judge it. He goes on, he says, the future judgments of the tribulation period are the direct expression of the wrath of God. Even the unregenerate hearts of men will recognize this in the last days. And you'll see that when you, if you read Revelation chapter 6, for example. <laughs> They'll know that all the catastrophe and wrath of God is coming from God. <laughs> Thank you, Lord, for that illustration. 
And he says, uh, Mr. Wingate says, perhaps this is why so many do not like Bible prophecy. Have you ever heard people who don't like prophecy? I have. It's amazing. Christians even, they say they don't like prophecy. He says, maybe that's why so many don't like it, because they selfishly want to focus on the love of God rather than on the wrath of God. He says these people treat the Bible like some kind of spiritual cafeteria where they can come and pick what they like, but they reject what does not appeal to their spiritual appetite. That's true. There's a lot of churches out there that they treat the Bible like a spiritual cafeteria. Well, we'll talk about the love of God, but we don't want to, we don't want to step on any toes. We don't want to hurt anybody. So we will just ignore the passages that talk about the wrath of God and the judgment of God. And so please stay away from the book of Revelation because it's all about the wrath of God. He says, we must study the whole counsel of the Bible, not just portions of it. How can a person justify ignoring 30% of the Bible simply because it is prophetic? Prophetic, end of quote. He, um, he is a, a man of God who has his ministry out of Boone's Mill, Virginia. And if you're interested in knowing more, you can see me later. All right, if the future, therefore, matters so much to God that 30% of his one and only book that he ever wrote... Is, is about prophecy. If, if the future matters to God, don't you think that it should matter to you and I? Can we say that we really love God with all our soul, heart, mind, and strength and not care about his plans for the future, which reflect his very heart and his program and his son and the glory that he has promised to his son, who his son so rightly deserves? You see, doesn't his son need to come back as the lion out of the tribe of Judah and and be glorified and magnified? He only came in his humiliation the first time as the Lamb of God to suffer and die. It's not finished. The story's not finished yet. Uh, So shouldn't we be excited about prophecy if, if God is excited about it? Perhaps the real problem for why so few people even know about God's program for the future And that's true. In our churches, there's a lot of people who have no idea about the things of the end times, which is called the study of eschatology. Eschatology is the study of end times events. But um, uh, perhaps the problem why so few really know about the study of eschatology, well, for one thing, they're not being taught, but... um, is, is the other reason is because they're all wrapped up. So many people are all wrapped up in their own plans and in their own agendas, and they just don't take the time. They don't take the time to study about God's plans and God's agenda. Are you watching for the Lord's return? Are you watching for the Lord's Are you, more important, are you ready for the Lord's return? That's the much bigger question. You know, you need to be ready. I hope and pray you are truly born again so that when the rapture comes, you go with the church and you won't be here to see the wrath of God on this earth as it's going to be like it never has been before. So the most important question is, are you ready? You know, many will be waiting. Many people will be waiting for his return. A lot of people have grown up in churches where they have heard about his return and they're waiting as they say, yeah, I know the Lord's coming back and I'm waiting. But they're not really watching. In other words, they they may believe in their heart that, yes, I know he's coming indeed, but they're not concerned about it. I mean, weeks might go by.
by without them ever even thinking about his return. Did you ever think about the fact that you can wait and not watch? How many of you have ever thought about that? I know it keeps you up at night. I can wait but not watch. (laughs) But in order to be ready, ready, you need to be waiting and watching. Dr. M. R. DeHaan, in his book on the second coming, used the illustration of a man in a railroad station waiting for his train to come. And I can really identify with this because when I lived in a suburb of Chicago, believe it or not, back in the old days, I used to take a train into work. I was a commuter, a train commuter, and I'd take a train an hour and a half into the loop State Street. I used to work on the State Street, which is downtown uh, Chicago. An hour and a half commute to work and an hour and a half commute back from work to where I live. That's three hours a day on the bumpity 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 bump. The train. <laughs> Got a lot of reading done, but you know, I guess it was better than driving. But I remember waiting for my train to come. And that's what this man was doing. Um, and in Dr. DeHaan's illustration, he says that the man was waiting for his train, but he fell asleep while he was waiting. So he was waiting, but he wasn't watching. If we really understand that Jesus is coming again, and he is, the scripture promises it, he promises it, God promises it, it's settled. If we really understand that truth, and if we understand the imminency of his return, we will not only be waiting, but we will be watching. We will not fall asleep spiritually. We will take our focus off of this world and put it where it rightly belongs. In the next world, longingly. How many of you could say in your heart, even so come quickly, Lord Jesus? I could. I could. Because I want to be out of here. You know, where we're going is a far better place. I know it's hard to say this to young people because I was like, no, 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 no. I want to, I want to get married. I want to have children. I want to experience, have, see them grow up. Let me promise you that it's going to be far better. You're not going to miss out on anything really here that could compare to what the next world holds for you. Really far better, far better. And you'll avoid a lot of heartache in this world. Now, although the parable, I haven't even gotten there yet, have I? (laughs) The parable of the faithful servant primarily applies to the nation of Israel. And this is going to throw a lot of you off, but don't worry about it yet. The primary application is for Israel. He's really speaking to Israel here. You won't get that until we get into the Olivet Discourse, which will be several years up the road. Um, This is really about his return to literally set up his kingdom. He's coming from the wedding, the Lord in this parable. The wedding, not a wedding. He's coming from the wedding, the wedding where he's married, the bride, the church. This is about his return to literally set up his kingdom. So he's really, his direct application is to Israel. And that, that helps us to understand this better. But basically I'm going to say to you that it applies in principle to you and I as the church as we anticipate his return in the rapture. So we're going to look at it and study it from our perspective that he is coming again soon. And we need to be ready, just like Israel will need to be ready at the end of the tribulation. You see, if some of you don't know this, there are two phases of the Lord's second coming. Just like there were two phases of his first coming, believe it or not, there are two phases of his second coming. Two phases in his first coming? I never heard that, Catherine. Yes, he came privately in an obscurity. 
you know, at the beginning, nobody knew Jesus really was born except those who were waiting and longing for him. Um, Mary and Joseph and Elizabeth and, and Zechariah and Simeon and Anna and, and the Bethlehem shepherds and, and the people who were really looking. And, and he came privately in obscurity. Just like at his second coming, he's going to come privately just for those who are longing and waiting for him, his church. He's going to come in the air, not to the land. He's going to come for his saints, not with his saints. Second phase, that's called the rapture. That's what you and I are looking for, and it could happen even before we dismiss today. Second phase of the second coming is when he comes publicly. Every eye shall see him. He came publicly at his first coming when he rode into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey, you know, and pronounced himself officially as the Messiah. That was his public phase of his first coming. The second phase of his second coming is called the return. There's the rapture and the return. They're seven years apart. The tribulation is in between. The return is sometimes called the revelation, but that confuses people with the book of Revelation, so I'm going to call it the rapture and the return. At the return, he comes all the way back, like those angels said, in like manner, he's going to come down to earth, back to the Mount of Olives from where he descended, ascended, and he's going to come in the clouds, and he's going to come with his saints. You and I are going to be with him when he returns to rescue Israel. So there's two phases. Um, and the church doesn't look for signs. Israel was all about signs. They're the ones who will need to look for the signs, and they're going to have plenty of them in the, in the tribulation period. They're going to have lots of signs before his return. The church doesn't look for signs. We look for the Savior. No signs to precede his return. Well, after the rapture of the church, there is going to be that seven-year tribulation on earth, you know, trials and tribulation like this earth has never, ever seen before. There's going to be a one-world government, which is easy to almost see, uh, and a one-world church, one-world religion, I should say, that will be set up by the counterfeit trinity. You know, everything Satan does, he counterfeits what God does. So there's a, there's a holy trinity, he's going to counterfeit with an unholy trinity. It will be made up of Satan, who counterfeits God, the Antichrist, who counterfeits Christ, and the false prophet, who counterfeits the Holy Spirit. The leader of the false religion will be that false, uh, he's called the false prophet. The Antichrist is going to establish a peace treaty with what nation? Israel is going to establish it, and I can almost see that happening in the news almost any day. Um, and he and he will suddenly break that peace treaty after three and a half years, and all the false peace will come to a very abrupt end. He will magnify himself, set him up, at, you know, in the temple in Israel to be worshipped by all persecution of anyone who doesn't worship him, which will primarily be the Jews and the Christians, those Christians who come to know the Lord during the tribulation, because the church will be raptured before, but there will be the great revival. That's the good news about the tribulation. More people will be saved in the tribulation probably than ever have been. There will be a great revival during the time of the tribulation, and many Jews will also be saved. Sad news is a lot of those people will die for their faith. They will will be martyred by the Antichrist because if they refuse to take the mark of the beast, 666, they they will be they'll either have to go into hiding or they'll be they'll be killed or they'll die of starvation because they won't be able to buy or sell. 
Um, and then, of course, there will be those who are sealed divinely from harm, like the 144,000 Jewish evangelists. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, this is a jet tour through Revelation. Well, um, taking place simultaneously during this seven-year period will be a series of catastrophic judgments coming down from God, you know, God's wrath in heaven. And he's doing this to purify Israel. He's putting her through the fire, and she'll come out purified as gold, and finally accepting and knowing who his son is, that he is indeed her long-awaited Messiah. But uh, God's wrath will come down through what is known as seven trumpet judgments, seven seal judgments, and seven bowl judgments. It will be awful, awful, awful. And the death toll will be astronomical. One half of the world's population will die. Now, the seven-year tribulation, of course, you know that Jesus called the last three and a half years of that seven years the Great Tribulation, will culminate in a massive world war involving the forces of the world converging in anti-Semitic hatred on the land of Israel. The battle to take place there is going to be called, or is called what? The Battle of Armageddon, because it will take place in the Valley of Megiddo, a natural battlefield there in Israel, also called the Valley of Jehoshaphat. And it will be during this battle, before the enemy forces of the Antichrist completely annihilate Israel, that the Lord Jesus Christ will come from heaven. You can read about it in Revelation chapter 19. He will come with the saints of the church to the Mount of Olives from whence he departed. And he will end that battle with what? Just the word of power from his mouth. And it will be over. He will not see Israel annihilated. No, sir. She is his chosen people. He, she is the apple of his eye. And he will then take the Antichrist and the false prophet, cast them into the lake of fire. He will bind Satan for 1,000 years, set up his kingdom literally here on earth. And, um, and it will be wonderful because justice and, and righteousness will finally prevail here on earth. And all these events and many more, which of course I didn't describe, make up what is called the second coming of Christ. So in a particular sense of the term, the second coming refers to the moment Christ returns to earth to end the battle of Armageddon and set up his kingdom. That's Revelation 19. But in a general sense, we could say that the second coming of Christ begins at the rapture and that it ends with the Lord's uh, physical return. So you can use that term broadly as well. So even though the parable specifically speaks to Israel, and again, I will demonstrate this to you over and over again when we get into the Olivet Discourse, yet it also speaks in general to us today. In fact, you know what? It speaks to us and to Israel and to men in general, mankind in general, even the unsaved, because we should all be ready for the Lord's return. And I can say that in general, he does say this parable to the whole world because even, well, because of Peter. Thank you, Peter. Peter interrupted the Lord with a question. Look at verse 41. It says, then Peter said unto him, after he gave the parable, um, Peter interrupted him and said, Lord, speakest thou this parable unto us or even to all? Well, Jesus goes on and doesn't answer him here. But guess what? We get his answer over in Mark. In, the, in a parallel account, 
we are told that after Jesus gave that parable, he said this, and what I say unto you, I say unto all. Watch. So this this word of, of warning about being watchful is for the church, it's for Israel, and really it's for the whole world. Now before beginning the parable itself, the Lord told his disciples to be ready always to serve. Look at look, verse 35. He says, let your loins be girded about and your lights burning. Rather than being spiritual hypocrites like the Pharisees or being covetous fools like the rich farmer or worrisome like the Gentile nations of the world, they were to be ready to serve serve him at all and any times. They were to be on alert with their loins girded. You know, they used to wear long robes. They'd have to take the center of their robe, men would, and they tuck it up in their girdle <laughs> or their belt. So it kind of make like big pantaloons and they could they could move about easier to serve. And they were to have their lights burning. They were to have batteries in their flashlights so that they could see what they were doing and they were to be ready day or night to serve. And then in order to further illustrate his message of being prepared and watchful, he gave them this parable of the faithful servants. He said to his men that they were to be like servants waiting for their Lord to return from the wedding. Interesting, he didn't say a wedding, but the wedding. They're to be ready for him to come back from the wedding. And uh, the servants didn't know how long their Lord would be absent. They didn't know how long he would be gone to attend this wedding. And because of the uncertainty as to the hour of his return, some of the servants might be inclined to neglect their responsibilities and their duties for the Lord in his absence. However, others would continue just as faithful and just as diligent for their uh, to their responsibilities in his absence as he was as they were when he was with them. And these faithful wait and they would watch at the gate it says for the master's return so that when they saw him coming and when they heard him knocking they would immediately open up to him and uh, Jesus pronounced a blessing on such servants who were so uh, so so ready and faithful and ever watching he said that that he would actually gird up his loins and serve them You know, I believe when the Lord returns from the wedding in heaven and he returns down to earth during the millennial kingdom, that's where we're going to celebrate the marriage supper of the Lamb. And Israel is invited to that. She's the guest to attend that wedding uh, celebration. And I believe, because the Lord is so rich, that that wedding celebration is going to go on for a thousand years. And guess who's going to serve the faithful servants? The Lord himself. It's amazing. That's just, that, that, that was not ever heard of, that the bridegroom would serve the guests. So, you know, when he comes, he brings his reward with him. And he enlarged on his, watching, his warning of watchfulness for his return in verse 39 by saying that if it was announced to a homeowner when a thief was going to come and break into his house. For example, if, if you knew ahead of time that a thief was coming at 1 o'clock in the morning to rob your house, what would you do? You'd get ready for him. You'd set up an alarm. You'd call the police ahead of time and have them waiting so that when the thief came, he could be immediately arrested. The ad- this attitude of preparedness and watchfulness is to characterize the faithful servants of Christ. We are to be on guard so that we're not caught by surprise, that we're not ashamed at his appearing, and that we don't have everything taken from us. 
like a thief would do. Isn't that what happened to the rich farmer, the foolish farmer? Suddenly, he wasn't prepared, and suddenly everything was taken from him. He couldn't take anything. All of his bigger and better barns couldn't go with him. Well, again, as I've already mentioned, Jesus is really speaking here um, about the fact that he was going to be leaving his men. He was going to be departing from them for an unknown amount of time. But in his absence, they were to remain alert and ready always for his return. They were to keep their work clothes on, and as I said, they were to keep their lamps burning, their flash, they're supposed to have the, what, D-cell batteries ready at all times, have spare batteries on hand so that they could always have light so they could see. And he said, Be ye therefore ready also for the Son of Man cometh at an hour when ye think not. All right, now, um, because of time, I think I'll just read verses 42 to 48 because I do want to talk about the second warning to be discerning. So let me just rush through verses 42 and 48. You can read more about them in your books. It says, uh, Peter asked that question, and then the Lord didn't answer him. He just went on to say, Who then is that faithful and wise steward whom his Lord shall make ruler over his household to give them their portion of meat in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his Lord when he cometh shall find so doing of a truth I say unto you that he will make him ruler over all that he hath what he's saying there is basically the same kind of idea you know to be ready but here he's using the example of a man who is a homeowner and he goes away and he entrusts his household to one of his stewards well, if that steward is faithful and trustworthy during the homeowner's absence, when the homeowner comes back, he, he rewards him by giving him greater responsibility. So the principle here is, you know, if we're faithful in a few, few things, he'll give us more responsibilities. Those Jews during the tribulation who are waiting for the Lord's return, they come to know who he is, and they're waiting, he's going to make them rulers in the millennial kingdom. All right, but it's the same principle as for true you for you and I. You know, if we're faithful in a few things, He's going to give us more and more responsibilities, and He is going to bring rewards with Him. All right, then it goes on. It says, "Where did I leave off?" Um, verse forty-five. All right, here's where scoffers come in. But and if that servant say, now here's if the servant isn't faithful, but says in his heart, "My Lord delayeth His coming." And he shall begin to beat the men servants and maidens and to eat and drink and to be drunken. The Lord of that servant will come in a day when he looketh not for him and in an hour when he is not aware and will cut him in sunder and will appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. There will be Jews in the last days, the tribulation, who will scoff just like they do today about the rapture of the church and say, oh, he's not coming. He's not coming. And they'll turn on their fellow servants and beat them, turn them in to the Antichrist, and the Lord says, when he does come, they will be cut in sunder. They will be cast, uh, what is he, says he, he will appoint their portion with unbelievers. And in the parallel account over in Mark, or Matthew, Matthew 24, 51, I believe it is, it says they will be cast in with the uh, hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So you know what that means? It means this servant, this unfaithful servant here, was not a believer, an unbeliever. 
Now, some commentaries will get this all messed up and will confuse you because you'll read, they'll say that there are Christians who just don't, you know, just say, well, I, I think he's delaying his return, he's not coming. But they're not believers. They wouldn't be cast where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth if they were truly believers. It speaks of unbelievers. And you know that by their attitude toward their master. He's gone. If they really loved him with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, the first and great commandment, they would keep on working for him even in his absence. And they wouldn't drink out of his uh, wine cellar till they got drunk. And they wouldn't eat all of his food out of his pantry while he was gone. And then they wouldn't turn on their fellow man if they truly love their neighbor as themselves, right? So these are unbelievers. All right, then it says, And that servant which knew his Lord's will and prepared not himself, neither did according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. But he that knew not and did commit things worthy of stripes shall be beaten with few stripes. For unto whomsoever much is given, of him shall much be, requ- be much required. And to whom men have committed much of him, they will ask the more. Now, there we have, again, the principle of the fact that there will be degrees of punishment in hell. Now, we learned that before when Jesus said, Woe unto you, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum, because it will be more tolerable for you and for them, for, no, for Tyrosidon and Gomorrah on the Day of Judgment than for you. There will be degrees based on one's privileges. And here we learn that there will be degrees of punishment in hell based on one's knowledge of God's will. Now that's kind of good to know because there are people in the world who have never heard a presentation of the gospel message. And they are, they're going to be less punished than people who have and rejected, who, who did know the Lord's will and yet rejected it. Okay? Now, though people who have never heard a clear presentation of the gospel are still going to be punished because they're born in sin and they all can live up to the light that God puts in them. If a man will live up to the light that it is put in him, God has written eternity in everybody's heart. If you really honestly want to know who God is, he will reveal it to you. And he has revealed himself in nature, in the creation. So they're still without excuse. But there will be different degrees of punishment in hell. And now we're going to get on to the last part. I'll have to let you read verses 49 to 53 and study them on your own. But let's, I do want to talk about uh, the last part of this, which is uh, to be discerning. Look at verse 54. It says, And he said also to the people. Now I'm glad he says this to the people, the audience instead of the disciples, because you'll notice here he calls them hypocrites. He's not speaking anymore directly to his disciples. He's called talking to the Judean crowd when he says, When ye see a cloud rise out of the west straightway, ye say, There cometh a shower. And so it is. So in other words, they can tell when a a rainstorm is coming because they see a cloud coming. All right, verse 55, And when you see the south wind blow, okay, when you have a a wind from the south, you know that there's going to be a temperature change. You say there will be heat, and it cometh to pass. Ye hypocrites, you can discern the face of the sky and the earth, but how is it that ye do not discern this time? Yea, and why even of yourselves judge ye not what is right? 
And uh, then he goes on. Well, let me just stop right there and tell you what he's saying. He's talking about the fact, and he's done this before when he was talking to scribes and Pharisees back in Matthew chapter 16. He says, you know, you know when a red sky, what a red sky means and da-da-da-da-da. You can read the weather report in the sky, but yet you don't know the signs of the time. They had every, every indication that was necessary to know who Jesus was and in what critical time they were living. And a lot of them did know it, and that's why they were hypocrites, because they just didn't want to be willing to face up to it. But, uh, and he says the same thing to the people here. You guys can read the signs of the time, the, uh, the weather reports, and yet you don't know the time. And you don't, you're without excuse. Why can't you judge what is right, he says in verse 57. Why even of yourselves judge ye not what is right, you people? You know what the people were doing? Always listening to their leaders instead of judging for themselves what was right. They had had John the Baptist. They knew he was a man of God, a prophet of God. They knew what he said. They had all the messianic scriptures of the Old Testament. They could have looked at Jesus and lined him up with those scriptures and known who he was. They knew all about his fantastic miracles. They had witnessed his miracles. They had heard of his, heard his great messages. Never man spake like this man. And his, mess, his miracles confirmed the truth of his messages. They were without excuse. They could have judged rightly on their own. But they, you know, they followed their leaders unfortunately. But what do you think the Lord would say to us if he came today? Would he not say exactly the same thing to you and I today? Well, maybe not to the world today. Do you have any idea whatsoever where we are today on God's prophetic calendar? If he was to come today, he would say to the world, What is the matter with you? You have advanced so much technology, you know, with technology. You've sent satellites up into outer space and you can tell us what the temperature is on Mars, etc. And yet you can't discern the time you're living in. Do you know where we are on God's prophetic calendar? I'm not alone in saying this. We are at the tippity-tip end. You know, if you even just go through Revelation chapters 2 and 3, which are amazing. Those two chapters go through seven letters to seven churches back in Asia Minor in the first century. But they prophetically spell out for us church history, starting with the apostolic church of Ephesus and going to the last, the seventh church of Laodicea, which is the um, apostate church, the lukewarm church where Jesus is on the outside of the door knocking to, you know, come, be asked to come in. He's not in a lot of our churches. He's outside knocking on the door. Please let me in. That's where we are. Definitely, without a doubt, we are in the, the last stage of church history. And I believe we're in the last days of the last days. You want to want to get excited? Just look at what's going on in the world today. Now, we don't have signs. We don't look for signs. But we can certainly see the shadows of those signs that are for Israel. They're casting their shadows on us today. Let me just tell you a few things. Uh, have you ever studied, for example, Ezekiel 38 and 39? How many of you ever studied Ezekiel 38 and 39? If you haven't, you need to because of where we are in history. Now, you might read it and scratch your head and say, what is all this about? But it is about the coming invasion of Israel by a coalition of Russia and Iran. Do you know that Russia and Iran have never been bedfellows before? First time in history they are. They are buddy buddies. 
Who do you think is supplying Iran with what she needs to, to have her nuclear warheads? <clears throat> Russia. Russia and Iran, along with Turkey and the Sudan and Libya and Ethiopia. They are going to invade Israel. <clears throat> Did you know that the current war between Israel and the Islamic warriors of Hezbollah in Lebanon and Hamas in uh, Gaza and the Islamic Jihad in the West Bank and others in Syria and in Iran and around the world. Did you know that all of that, that war that's going on in the Middle East, and it is a war, is one giant step in the direction of prophetic events spelled out in the Bible? Do you know Ezekiel 38 and 39 tells us about the war of Gog and Magog? And uh, you can go back and find out that that is speaking about Russia and Iran, etc., what I just told you, and that they are going to invade Israel and a lot of Bible, the best Bible prophecy experts in the world do not know whether that invasion happens before the rapture or after the rapture. So we may be here to see it. Do you know what's going on with Putin and Ahmadinejad? <laughs> Ahmadinejad said, was it last month? He just said, the Zionism is going to be out of here very soon, very soon. Zionists are those who believe there should be a land for the Jews, Israel. Did you know that anti-Semitism is on the rise big time? Like back in Nazi days, all around the world. Now, we may not hear about it, but it is. I get a magazine called Israel My Glory, and this last issue was all about the persecution of Jews going on all over. Anti-Semitism is on the rise, and that falls right into who does Satan hate the most? Israel and the Jews and the Christians, the true Christians. And we see that on the rise as well, don't we? Do you know never before in history have we had the technology where we could see a cashless society where instead of swiping our little credit cards across that thing at the cash register, we just swipe our hands. I mean, they're putting chips in animals. Why not put a little U.S. What's it called? U.S.B. code? What's that little bar code? UPC. UPC. Could put that little thing in our hand or on our forehead. I mean, we can see that happening in our day. You can see Islam, perhaps, and I believe now maybe Islam will be the uh, one world religion of the last days. We can see an economic collapse of the whole world because we're so tied in globally, everybody with computers and everything, that if somebody hijacked the whole system with some kind of a virus, we everything could shut down in one day. That's what it says, you know, in uh, Ezekiel, I mean in, in uh, Revelation. Uh, 17 and 18, it talks about Babylon crashing in one day. Stock markets, everything, one day. You know, the, the American dollar is just going down, down, down. It's scary. It is scary. I'm so glad I don't have to worry, right? Don't have to worry. <laughs> just be concerned about all these things. I would be a nervous wreck if I didn't know how it ended. If I haven't spent years studying pro prophecy, I would be a nervous wreck with what is happening today. You know, never before in, in, in the world could you see, for example, something live happening as it's happening on television. Even 50 years ago, there would be a delay before you saw the news. But right today, we could see the two mighty witnesses being killed. And there they are, laying in the streets of Israel. And the whole world would see it. And that's what it says in Revelation. The whole world would see, will see those two mighty witnesses lying there. 
I mean, we, it, we need to be discerning the times that we are living in. And we need to be looking where? Up. Because really, literally, as never, ever before, he could come quickly, very soon. And I say, oh, even so, Lord Jesus, do come quickly. Let's be ready when he does.